Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Hope everybody's having a wonderful and happy and healthy holiday season as we get set for the end of 2019. And before we get to this week's episode, reminder, check out our website, hazardground.com, because on the website... You can do all of your Amazon shopping and help out veterans at the exact same time. It's really simple. Our website has a ground.com. Go to the bottom of the homepage or any page for that matter and click on the Amazon button. It'll take you right to Amazon. You do all of your normal shopping as you would. Get those last-minute gifts for friends, loved ones, family, whatever it may be. And we get a percentage of what you spend, and then we'll donate that back to some of the great charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. If you've got a reader in the family, if you've got somebody who loves to read books and loves this sort of content, on our website, hazardground.com, click on the List tab, and there is a list of all of the people who have been featured on the Hazard Ground who either have a book, have a movie, or have had a movie made about them. That's the place you go for anybody who's a big reader or a fan of this podcast to get them exactly what they need. Don't forget to follow us on all those social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Keep up with us through the holidays and beyond, and tell friends to follow us as well. Really trying to grow that social media following, and this way we can start to impact more of you guys on a daily basis and interact with you guys because we love the listener suggestions, and that's where we get a lot of them from on social media. Or you could send us an email at producer at hazardground.com, and you can suggest people that you want to see on the show. Any stories you know of, we'd love to tell them for you. So, again, go to our social media sites, hit us up that way, or producer at hazardground.com. With all that out of the way, again, hope everybody's having a wonderful holiday season, and let's get on with this week's episode. Our guest this week is a former Marine who left the Corps as a sergeant after deploying to Saudi Arabia in the Gulf War and deployed multiple other times around the world before leaving the Marine Corps to ultimately become a best-selling author and a writer of 31 different books. He is Jeff Hoff joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Jeff, welcome. Thank you for being here. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. 31 books. That is insanity. Um, Most people don't read 31 books, let alone write them. So we will get to that. But uh, let's start back at the beginning as to how and why you joined the Marine Corps. Oh, well, uh, that's that's a really good question. My my father was a Marine. And so, you know, listening to his stories back in the 1950s, he was a post-Korea War uh, uh, Marine. And just seemed really romanticized and just the, the, the concept of being an expeditionary force and, and so forth and so on really, really attracted me. So uh, when the opportunity, when the time came up, that's, that's what I did. I enlisted. So right out of high school, didn't go to college or anything? Correct. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, I was doing really good in high school too. I had, I had real opportunities to go to, uh, to get scholarships and go to and go to college, but I just was kind of done with school at the time. And I just wanted to, uh, I just wanted to see the world. I, I really wanted to travel around and, and do things, um, not just have my head stuck in a book uh, for another, you know, four years. The irony of you saying, I don't want my head stuck in a book was, you know, not lost upon me, given the fact that you wrote 31 of them. But again, neither here nor there. So when you told your dad and your, and your mom you were going to enlist in the Marines, what they say? 
Well, my well, my parents were always very supportive of any of us. I'm I'm one of four kids, and always very supportive of any decision we made, as long as it was you know reasonable. And uh, my dad was proud uh, of of that. Um, what's What's interesting at first, I I I had been I was looking at the Marine Corps, but I'd also been approached by the recruiter in the Navy. He was offering all kinds of interesting stuff, and I mentioned my dad. He just kind of gave me a hard look, and I kind of knew what that meant. Um, but still, I'd always had, I kind of really wanted the, the, what, what, what I, what the Marine Corps could give me. And that was literally to be an expeditionary force to travel around the world. To, if I had the opportunity to go, to go into combat, that would be, that would be something that I could, I would want to do. And my, and my mom was just kind of leery, you know, that I, I think just kind of being like any, any mom is, you know, like just concerned that if anything happens, you know, her baby is over there in, in harm's way. So but yeah, overall, very, very supportive. When you say your dad gave you a look, was that the look of the, uh, listen, you're going to join the men's department of the Navy kind of look? <laughs> exactly. Okay. All yeah. right, just making sure. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, okay. That, that's what the Marine Corps is, the men's department of the Navy. Okay. So when you enlisted, though, um, you know, we are just out of the Reagan era and uh, the Reagan administration, you know, we're out of the post-Vietnam funk, world peace is upon us, and the biggest, uh, you know, I guess conflict we had was was tearing down the Berlin Wall. But beyond that, there was nothing really going on, right? Yeah, you know, there were. And uh, when I when I got in, um, uh, there was there was just a handful of uh, guys, all very senior, you know, either senior officers or senior enlisted that had any kind of time uh, in Vietnam. Uh, just really, but still on the tail end of that. And, uh, you know, I remember when I, when, one of the first things I, when I got to my parent unit, like the, the, the situation in Panama was going down. And so yeah. you had little things like that, you know, Panama, and then there was like with Grenada and then the, well, the things that happened in, in Beirut and, and so forth. But any kind of kind of large scale combat was Vietnam. And there were very few people in that had even seen that. Do you remember what your dad told you about basic training, how hard it was going to be or anything like that? Did you find it difficult? Um, yeah, my dad told me it was hard. He, I, I, he was telling me, but he told me all kinds of, you know, fun stories about essentially being beaten up, <laughs> but, um, he said it was hard, but he, he thought it was good. It was, it was the type of the way he would describe it. It was, it was good for a man to kind of, um, be broken down so that he could be built back up essentially. And, um, yeah, I, I found it challenging. Yeah, absolutely. I remember like, I think with them by my fifth day and recruit training, I was like, I was like, what the hell have I done? I've got five years, 360 days left of this. So um, it was definitely a culture shock. I mean, I grew up, you know, a very nice family, you know, middle class, uh, grew up on a farm. But, you know, it's just, it was definitely a culture shock to be kind of thrust into, in, into that. Was it like full metal jacket for you? Was that the kind of awakening it was? No, no, it wasn't. I didn't. But while I, I watched that movie quite often <laughs> before I went in, it was no, it wasn't it wasn't anything like that. I mean, was it it was definitely strict. I mean, it was I, I found it very, very difficult. Um, but, I, you know, yeah, I mean, I, actually, I don't think I'd want to do it again right now at my age. I don't know if I could make it. That's funny. Um, all right. So after Paris Island, um, you head to Camp Lejeune, right? Uh, and, and you start actually becoming a Marine. What's that like? And do you know what your future is at that point in time? 
Yeah, well, well, I had um, my recruiter. I was like the dumbest guy walking in his doors. Uh, so I was kind of kind of rewind a little bit. Um, again, I had really good. I did really good in school, and I had really uh, high ASVAB scores. And I could have. Uh, he had all these things like avionics, all this kind of you know for sm- all the smart kids to do. And I was like, no, Sergeant Tobin. I still remember his name. It's funny. I said, no, Sergeant Tobin. I want to be. I want to be infantry. You know. I want to be the tip of the spear. And uh, he was like, really? I'm like, yeah. And on, on top of it, they had this program at the time. I can't remember what it was called. It was essentially the six-year enlistment. And they guaranteed, you know, duty station, uh, uh, your first duty station, as well as a guaranteed uh, PFC, which is E2, within a certain period of time. What, what I didn't know is pretty much everyone got PFC within that time period anyway, for the most part. So I got I got suckered into that. My dad kind of tried to talk me out of it, but I was just really headstrong at that time and t- kind of pretty much told him I knew what I was doing, blah, blah, blah. So I ended up signing infantry, <laughs> just the basic infantry, you know, whatever that was going to be for six years. And Sergeant Tobin just like, okay. <laughs> and then when I get to, when I leave uh, recruit training and I, after my 10 days of leave, I go down to Lejeune, go to Camp Geiger specifically, and at that time, the Marine Corps just started a, a, a it was a beta program at that time. I think it's I think it's fully implemented now. It's called um, uh, Marine Combat Training, MCT. And uh, I went down to MCT. And I think it was like a six week package. Essentially, it's like a, another type of an infantry school. So I did MC, I did this that beta program, did that, and then all the other MOSs left when that was over. And then we just literally just marched over to another set of squad bays and then started School of Infantry. And when with the basic package, we weren't quite sure exactly where we were going to be specifically in the infantry as, as, as far as what MOS specifically we were going to be until a little bit after after kind of the basic infantry stuff that was, was we were taught. And then I remember my our, they were calling out names and about eight of us, six to eight, I can't remember right now, were like sequestered over to the side. We're like standing around like these redheaded stepchildren, like, why did we do something wrong? Or why are we sitting over here by ourselves and these other guys are – 0311s, 0331s, you know, and like, what's going on here? And they, and, and one guy walks over, I think it was a corporal, and he goes, hey, you guys, you, you guys, you guys have it made. You're 0352s, you're going to be a tow gunner, you're going to be driving in Humvees. The rest of these guys are going to be humping. <laughs> like, okay. So then I began the, the, the anti tank tow gunner school after that. So when do you finish that, like month and year time frame? That would have been in 89. That would have been in the – we finished that in the summer of like June. I believe it was like the summer of 89 is when um, is when I finished School of Infantry and then got my orders and then got my first duty station, which was which I was guaranteed, which was going to be in the West Coast. I'd always wanted to go to, to California and head out to Camp Pendleton and get assigned to anti-tank company or tow company, 1st Tank Battalion. All right, so a year later – uh, Saddam Hussein decides to invade Kuwait. Where are you? What are you doing? And, um, you know, obviously we're going to immediately jump on a plane and go, but what are you thinking at that time when you start hearing the rumblings of it? So it was in the week we had, we had, uh, deployed to, uh, uh, we were, uh, to, had deployed a, one of our platoons. I was in third platoon tow company. We had attached, we were attached to a tank company and then we deployed to on a unit deployment program to Okinawa. Okay. And we had just arrived in Okinawa right when Saddam's forces invaded Kuwait. So all that's going on, and, and everyone's – I mean, there's a lot of talk happening. And now we're, we're sitting in Camp Schwab over in Okinawa, 
and then I, it was it was rather quick that also we get told we're actually deploying right away. And I'm like, oh, wow. You know, and then there's all this talk about how the Iraqi army is hardened, you know, the fourth largest army in the world, hardened after so many years of fighting, you know, against Iran and all this stuff, blah, 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 blah. And then um, they, 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 they get some ships together and they, we, we get on board these ships and sail over there. But I remember uh, it really hit me what was kind of happening because a lot of it, it, the, if you, if you go back to that time, everything escalated really quickly. Yeah. It's like he invades Kuwait. There's a lot of talk. And next thing you know, I mean, you know, George Bush is gathering forces and starting to really start to deploy them. And well, we got told we're actually going. To, we're going over to defend the, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And I remember we were we were we were marching down to the supply, <clears throat> excuse me, and they give us our our desert candies. They literally pull out of these old boxes, those old you the know, chocolate chips, chocolate, the old the chocolate chip candies. Yeah, were literally all dusty and moldy and just gross, and they'd been sitting crusty in a box since like 1970s or something. And <clears throat> they give us those, and then they issue us all the mop gear, all this additional mop gear. And of course, that was kind of the, a lot of the talk during the Iran-Iraq war. There was a lot of chemical weapons and, and and so forth deployed, and that's when it hit me that I was like, "Shit, man! Like this is real. Like I could be going to, I be could be going to war. I could die." It was then where, where it was kind of thrilling that we were actually going to be doing something, like the kind of first combat, possibly or first kind of real large-scale deployment since Vietnam. Once that thrill, then when the reality hit me, I actually, I got I got scared. I'll admit, it. I was like, I this is kind of scary, yeah, because you just don't know what you're getting ready to get into. You watch the movies, but then the reality is so different, right? And and then we boarded ships and we set sail. We landed in Jubail, which is like a port city in Saudi Arabia, and I think it was like September seventeenth, the nineteen nineties, when we landed. And we get off, and there's like hardly anybody there. I think a a it's det- a detachment of the 82nd, I think, was already there. It, there wasn't very many troops there at all. I mean, By the way, like how long does it take 000. to sail from Okinawa to the Middle East? So we ended up, I think we left in late August, if that was right. I think, that's, I think it was, I believe it was late August. We were on an LST, the USS San Bernardino, which I don't think is even around anymore. We, which was great, by the way. So we, we leave Okinawa, we sail. They have us pull into, a, uh, into Subic Bay, Naval Base. And we get they give us like three days of libo, which was awesome because everyone doesn't know what they're getting ready to get into. So people really go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and now, and wait, hang just, on a second. You have to kind of in, tell me and enlighten me here. What was the craziest thing anybody did that you knew of? <laughs> well, I'm just I don't know. I'm just going to say it, it would involve bottles and women and and chairs that swing and they have holes in the bottom gotcha noted <laughs> I don't want to i'll allow the audience to draw their own conclusions <laughs> exactly but it's just you know you just let loose a bunch of young studs right and to us yeah, anyway so it was crazy so so it, it took us around two and a half three weeks to because we made that one stop and then we then we sailed to the straits of malacca and blah 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 and that's when then we finally arrived but uh, and then we got off, and again there wasn't there was hardly anybody there. We actually sat on the we sat on the port for a few days, just hanging out. And, we, and that again that was so just so damn surreal because I never experienced any kind of Middle Eastern country ever before in my life. And, and the only and like every morning you hear the minarets playing and, there, and all this stuff you could hear in the distance, you know, of the city. And 
it was just it, this totally just I felt like I was just taken out of like my life. And then even though the Marine Corps was already kind of a trip, now I'm over here in the Middle East and it's it's hot as balls already. And it's just so weird. And again, there wasn't very many people there. And then after a week, we, uh, we once we get all, all the Hummers come off, all the gear, and then uh, then they say we're going to go deploy somewhere out into the desert and set up defensive positions. And that's what we did. We headed out in the middle of literally nowhere, and then dug dug ditches and put the vehicles in, and then covered them with the cami netting. You know, I don't know if people really can appreciate um, when you talk about the desert in Saudi Arabia, and I haven't been to Saudi Arabia other than the cities, but I have been to the middle of Kuwait, and the desert in the middle of Kuwait is as barren as anybody has ever made it look on TV. Like, it, it really is that. Like, you're literally standing, and you go in a complete 360, and there's nothing but sand. And you don't see anything, any buildings, any structures. I can remember when we did train up for my first deployment, and this was going to Iraq, but, you know, you spent a, a sh- short amount of time in Kuwait, you know, about 10, 15 days there just doing your final training and everything. I remember they drove us out to where a range was. Literally, we drove through sand for 20 minutes. I had no idea where they were going. I don't think they had any idea. All of a sudden, we just end up at this range that's out in the middle of the desert. But, like, when you're in that, is that overwhelming that you're standing around in the middle of this desert on the other side of the world going, where the hell am I? Like, this isn't real. Yeah, well, yeah, it feels like you're in some kind of foreign like landscape, like on a planet somewhere, some other planet. It's a, I know you're right. There's nothing. We would drive for – well, you encountered this too. We'd drive for hours sometimes, and it'd be nothing, <laughs> just nothing. And, you know, I remember that like you know when we did, when we right before we made the big push, um, we, we literally drove. I think it was like eight hours the night to get to get to where we were just on the south, just on the um, the other side of the of the line of departure, and just like. Just all night long, there's nothing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so 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 surreal, so weird, and and we just and what was interesting too about it is because there were so few people deployed at that time in mid to late September that it was just kind of this very weird, uh, like we were kind of being left out there, and they, I don't want to use the word. I guess the best word to use is like lonely, like. We're it. <laughs> we're, right. we're the ones that are going to stop Saddam's forces if they decide to come across the Kuwaiti and Saudi border. Like, really? And what's interesting, all the training we were doing for like the first month and a half was all about delay and defend. That was all we were there. We were there to defend because they positioned us near some of these northern oil fields. And that was our, our only job was to do was to do a delay and defend tactic. If he he had he had he 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 outnumbered us. I don't know what what it was. It was like three to one or whatever it was at the time. And our job was literally just to delay and defend until we could get back to the port and then give them the ships and then get out of there. That's literally what we did for the first month and a half. As we would practice, you know, training, they, they were they were assaulting us. And then I get because our we did just did not have that many forces in the country at the time. What were the uh, day-to-day conditions like in the heat there? I mean, you know, obviously it's nothing like the United States, but I'm just curious as the first time you land, you you, know, you talked about the ro- romantic nature of this whole thing that your dad had told you about, and all of a sudden you get to this desert, it's 130 degrees, and you're like, this has got to suck, no? It totally sucked. It, and when, you were, when we were stuck out into, uh, you know, near these oil fields, it's just, it's just, you're just living in a hole, just eating MREs. There's no hot food. We were just stuck in the field for weeks and weeks nonstop like no hot food being brought in none of that stuff like there was just the, the resources 
weren't set up. There was no infrastructure. There was really no infrastructure set up. I mean, there was a time was it in November, December, we actually ran out of food. Really? We, yeah. I, I know this sounds so crazy because I think now the, the supply trains and the way things are set up are just, we actually ran, we were sitting, we had, we had gathered what MREs we had, little parts of the stuff that you don't want to eat, like the butt cake and all the other garbage, and just toss it on the hood of the Hummer. We were kind of divvying it up. We had actually run out of food. We then had, we deployed a couple Hummers to go out and find, if we can find some additional food somewhere. And we ended up coming across an army base. <laughs> you guys in the army have so much stuff, man. Yeah, it's, and- <laughs> it's excessive. <laughs> There was like, it was like, it was like, it was, it was, when we first came upon it, it was like, we were like, this is like, what's that they call in the desert? Like a mirage. It was just so all this, like just crates and crates of food and pogey bait and all this stuff. So we ended up uh, stealing a bunch of it <laughs> and brought it back. That's pretty awesome. Did they know? No, 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 no. They never no, found actually, out? No, we actually literally stole it. Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and we were sanctioned by our uh, company commander. <laughs> oh, wow. That is crazy. Yeah. It, 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 even like the supply for parts. I remember somewhere like our Hummers were falling apart. We ended up going and stealing tires and stealing stuff. Yeah. It's, All right. it's weird. Yeah. So you're getting through this monotony of the first you know month plus of being there. Um, are you hearing anything more about... The idea of crossing the border and going forward, are you chomping at the bit to do that? Again, at the first like month and a half, we, you know, going back to the like the conditions, it was just incredibly hot. We would just sit in the, we just all, all we did was sit around most of the time. If we weren't training, we were just sitting in the Hummer, just drinking water, and again, it was like 120, 130 degrees, just super hot. Um, but uh, we were, I was anxious. Yeah, I mean, I was anxious to to do it. For I was, I kept thinking, if we're going to do this, let's just do it. And then. But the most part, we, our mission at that time wasn't we was just strictly to be in defense. If they attacked, we were not. There was nothing about us going on the offense. It was all strictly about being defensive, and to be there as that kind of. I'll use overuse that line line in the sand in case he decided to jump across because that was something he kept saying too that the northern province or the northern part of Saudi Arabia he also considered his. And that's where all those there were there were a lot of those oil fields up there. And so that's where we were. And again, just strictly to defend it, not to go on the offense. So that's what kind of the first month and a half, all the way into October, and then more forces. But at the time, we were listening to I think it was the Armed Forces Radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we we managed to be able to pick that up on this one radio we had in our Hummer. And uh, we, we hear the daily news and more forces are being deployed more and more and more. And then they were setting up a bunch of um, uh, tent cities and whatnot south of us. And then we finally got our break. I remember that. I think it was like mid-October. No, it might have been late October. We, got a, we finally got sent back to this tent city called Camp Dan Daly. And it was like, oh, my God, you thought it was like the Ritz-Carlton. Really? It was awesome. Yeah. Oh, we hadn't had showers in like, you know, almost a month. It was crusty and stinky, man. Wow. <laughs> all right. So when does all this finally kick off for you? Like when or does it ever actually kick off? Because I know a lot of guys end up, you know, just kind of sitting there the whole time. And um, because of how quick things went and how quickly the Iraqi forces folded like a lawn chair, a lot of guys didn't get a chance to get in the fight. Well, the again, we sat there 
for a long time. And then we kept doing a more and more training and then the training uh, transitioned to uh, us going on the offense. You could tell that when there was a different posture and a different plan had been implemented. But again, I got there in mid-September. So, you know, the, the air war starts in what, January? And then the ground war starts in, was that, was that mid-February? So the whole time we're just, just sitting in the desert. Now we've got a rotation. We're going back to these, these tent cities. And then it was around December that all changes. And we're not, right. I believe it was that we're not, we're not, we're no longer going back to anywhere tent cities. Now we're being, we're being pushed even further to the border. And at that time we got assigned to um, uh, light armored infantry um, uh, battalion, our platoon did. And so we were, we were to be their anti-tank support, even though those LADs also had some of those tow variants, we were assigned to them and they were doing, they were going up to the border and doing a lot of like, what they call like light armored reconnaissance. They were doing some reconnaissance work up near, near the border. And so we were with them and then the air war starts. And then there was that, that engagement at Kafji okay. uh, that happened. And they deployed LAR, the guys we were assigned with. They kept us back for whatever reason. And then that's when he had all those guys, all those Marines get killed. And it was friendly fire. Oh, really? Yeah. If you go back, like, I think that was some of the first casualties where those Marines killed in the, uh, the, the, at the Battle of Kafji, uh, all done by. Uh, Refresh my memory. Airport. I'm sorry. I don't remember. Well, Kafji was is where uh, Saddam's forces penetrated into Saudi Arabia, and I guess they, they made, if I'm, my, my memory serves me right, they 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 were they approached the Allied forces, our forces, and they had their the, the turrets or their tank turned around as if they were surrendering, and as we approached, they then turned them around and started engaging us, and then a lot of Marines got some Marines got stuck inside the city and they were defending it. I think these are like some Anglico guys and whatnot, like uh, like Ford observers were stuck inside the city. And um, then LAI, uh, or yeah, light armored uh, reconnaissance guys showed up and then there was the engagement outside of it. And the Air Force got in, got engaged too. And they were you know clearly blowing up their tanks, but also blew up some of ours. <laughs> Thank you, Air Force. <laughs> wow, crazy. Um, and, you know, for those who aren't military listening, unfortunately, friendly fire stuff happens a lot more uh, than you'd think it happened in Najaf during the, uh, you know, a couple of weeks after the invasion of Iraq in, in, in 03. I mean, it's it's unfortunately it's a, a casualty uh, and, and, you know, collateral damage sometimes of combat. Uh, but I, I witnessed I witnessed it quite a bit. And oh, really? When everything, when, when everything started happening, there was that incident. And then was like when we were getting ready to um, right before we crossed the line of departure. We had this Humvee that had radar equipment in it. That got that got blown up by it was like a scram missile. One of ours took it out, killed two Marines in there. And then um, when Task Force Grizzly crossed the minefields first, they got lit up by artillery. <laughs> Our artillery. <laughs> really? Just, yeah. I shouldn't laugh about it. It's just I'm glad because the irony of it, you know, it's it's but it's also just goes to show you just how chaotic and confusing it is. You know, you know. It's just there's a lot there's a lot of moving parts there's a lot of stuff going on and and it's just you know of course that was that was the middle of the night when that happened when the, those guys at uh, Task Force Grizzly got lit up. I mean that's got to be the worst feeling. You wake up and and stuff's landing all around you. 
Well, I remember that's what I know when that when the scram missile came out, that wasn't that far from me when it hit. I was just up in the turret just hanging out and all of a sudden it, I just you see this like flash and then all of a sudden this Humber just explodes. And I remember just looking over there, guys with people running around, not sure what's going on, and you know, everyone is getting ready to, you know, the fight because no one knows what's happening. I just remember looking over and seeing the driver just hunched over and just his you know, just burning in the in the cab of the Humvee. Oh God. I mean, that's probably an image that stays with you, I guess, huh? Well, I mean, I haven't forgotten it now, but it's just, it was just, I was my real first like, oh, okay. <laughs> but, you know, going back to what you were saying before about being anxious, I, I remember when we were there, we, we, we were there for so long just sitting around and waiting that once we were getting ready, moving into position, the, the air war started, we were all just ready just to do it. We just wanted to go home. And we're like, listen, if the only way home is now across the line of departure in north, then that's the only way home. Let's just do this. Let's get it on. Let's see what happens. We were just ready to do it. I remember when there was this one last peace initiative that was going to be happening. A lot of us were sitting here listening on the radio, and then when it came out, that wasn't going to happen. We're like, okay, I guess the only way we're going to we're going to get to go home is to go north. And let's just let's just get this let's just get this on. So. All right. So when does the real first part of this kick off for you? Um, it's when we drove all through the night and we positioned ourselves south of some of these minefields. Uh, and that's when that that Humvee that with the radar in it got blown up. I was I was part of the uh, task force. There was four task force forces that um, IMF was part of the task force Gridley, task force Tarot, Papa Bear and Ripper. And uh, Papa Bear and Ripper were the main forces. You know, they had the heavy armor and things like that. And then uh, Grizzly and Tarot, we were kind of reconnaissance um, uh, task force. We actually went in two days before the ground war started is when we crossed the minefields. Okay. We went in, we, we penetrated the minefields first and then crossed into uh, Kuwait in the middle of the night, drove up and then took up positions um, south, there was like another set of minefields even further in, and then just we're just kind of there, just seeing what was happening and, and sending reports back to uh, the other task forces of what was happening. This is before George Bush even got on and said the ground war had even initiated. We'd already we were already inside Kuwait at that time. Okay. And um, with Sinching, we cross over the the no one like they had abandoned the Iraqis had abandoned the positions on the other side of it. They'd already given up and already fallen back. So we crossed over. The only the only thing we had, we had one like a, one of our tanks got the tracks blown off because it hit a mine. And so we get in and we get over. We capture a handful of people here and there, stragglers, Iraqis surrendering. And, like these guys, but but they, let me ask you real quick, as far as the surrendering, did it go as easily as it's depicted? Like guys just started seeing American soldiers and just dropped their weapons through their hands up in the air and started walking towards you. That's a pretty pretty fair depiction, yeah. <laughs> and 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 any time though, it, it, there would be some resistance. I remember it was like it was the third day we were in. Now I'm jumping all over the place now, but now once the ground war actually kicked off, then we started really advancing north, uh, moving fast. And then anyone we would encounter, they were pretty much yeah. You were you're, that depiction's correct. They would see us and then literally drop their shit and then come out with their you know hands up, and. Um, but we would. I remember, like the third day, we we received some resistance, and the minute we respond with this overwhelming, you know, uh, force, then they were surrendering, right? Um, but sometimes they would try, and they would fail. 
<laughs> but then, then, then they would surrender. And sometimes it's just in mass, like in mass, hundreds of them. That is thousands. I, I, I never encountered that, but hundreds of them. Some the whole units were just surrendering. That is crazy. Um, and you know, unfortunately, um, that behavior actually hurt us in Iraq the second time around because we were not prepared for a, a much harder force that we were fighting the second time around than, than what we encountered the first time. And not that anybody there was the same, but obviously word had been passed down like, hey, you know, these guys, first couple of shots, they're running or surrendering. And that certainly wasn't the case in any engagement I had in Iraq. That's for darn sure. Nobody dropped their weapon and started walking towards us and say, I give up. Yeah, I, I, well, I think they're two different scenarios. You've got one, they're, they're an invader, right? And now they're defending their home. I think that probably is a lot, a lot to be said about that, too. And I think also, the, I think when you look at it, too, those Iraqis had been sitting in those positions for as long as I've been sitting over there. Like, was it at that time, it was eight months, whatever, been uh, yeah, just yeah. sitting there, right? And on top of it, our Air Force was bombing the fuck out of them. I remember before, like during the during the air war, we were sitting because our positions were, were way up close, and you could see, you could you could we see B fifty twos flying over. That, by the way, is an impressive sight. And then you you listen like twenty minutes, thirty minutes later, you just hear the, the grounds rumbling, and they're just dumping their payloads on those guys. It was just like impressive. I mean, almost something something you see like in World War Two, you see bombers flying overhead high up and then you just wait for the ground to rumble and then the, the kind of thunder in the distance. And then I remember too, when we started seeing like the sky in the North, like turning black, what we didn't know is that's when they were lighting up all those oil fields. Gotcha. Yeah. Let me ask you, were any of the guys that you were with angry because the war was being won from the air and not by you guys on the ground? Yeah. What yeah. was that like for you? I mean, you, you didn't seem you don't seem to be bothered by it. It is what it is, I guess. I, you know, I don't. But yes, there were absolutely. I remember one time we uh, we this was on that third day. We were calling in to engage uh, uh, these pillboxes, and we were told to stand down, even though like the toe is a perfect weapon to destroy a pillbox, <laughs> right. right? And uh, they they brought in um, Cobra gunships to do it. And I remember my. Uh, I don't want to mention the name. Actually, he he gets out of the he gets out of the Hummer and he's pissed off. He just starts firing his M16. <laughs> he's just so mad about it. He's like, because he just wanted this. Like, why aren't they letting us fight? And I guess they knew. Just uh, I don't know. I, I can't I can't explain it. But that was one incident where they they told us to stand down so they could bring in air support versus having us do the work. And, and you know, it's contrary because at least in. The Iraq war and uh, from what I know from people of Afghanistan, but uh, that air cover was all, all your life. I mean, you didn't want to go anywhere without air. You, they told you you were going on a mission without air cover. You're like, damn, let's make this thing 10 times harder. You know, we don't mind fighting on the ground, but having that, that air cover up top is everything you need uh, to be the decisive engagement in the battle. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think, I, think, I think it goes back to expectations, right? You know, and I know for the guys in my unit, We'd been there so long, and we were just so hardened and ready just to do it. I think then that expectation of what – well, because here's something, too. They were all – they were telling us, like – because we were like that first phase. We were like that first wave that was going over there. Like, they expect almost 100% casualties and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that was what their expectation was for us, right? We were going to go in there, and they were going to – they were going to be on their side dug into their positions, and they were just going to just – you know, trying to cross a minefield 
is not an easy thing to do, by the way. And you 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 make yourself an easy target because there's only so many lanes you can open up, right? Mm-hmm. And so imagine this, you know, all this all this armor and vehicles and everyone's just 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 lining up to go across. Imagine being under assault in that at that moment, heavy assault. You you can imagine we're just been a total shit show, right? Right. And so that's what our expectation was is we were getting ready to like funnel across these the handful of of lanes they'd hit that these uh, Amtraks had opened up for us to be just peppered with rounds and shit. We just had no idea. So they were telling us we were, we were going to get crushed. And so when we get through that, we're like, okay. And then it's just this expectation, this, this, our anxiety and our tension was so high thinking that we were going to be encountering this, this insanity, you know, like storming the beaches of Normandy. Right. And it, it wasn't there. I mean, there was little pockets of, you know, a resistance here and there, and, and, and there was engagements here and there, but nothing like the intensity of what we were told we should be expecting. How does your time in Saudi Arabia end? So it, um, Kuwait ends for us. We get um, Task Force Tarot after that one engagement um, uh, at, at the second minefield belt. After, after we have an engagement there, it's what is like half Iraqis surrender. We go to get them. And then the other ones that don't open up on us with indirect fire. And so once we, we clean those guys up, we cross over. They just, if I remember right, they just, they essentially dissolved task force terror and the elements of task force terror. Then were we were assigned to task force Papa bear. And then, uh, then we're on our way to, um, uh, Kuwait international airport to secure that. But there's a funny story as we're heading to met, to meet up, to link up with Papa bears, the elements of Papa bear, um, out of the, cause th- that's when we encountered the Bergen oil fields and they're all on fire. Mm-hmm. It's like going in Dante's hell, dude. And like, it's just this, you can't see shit. And it's, it's, there's a, you just see these flames everywhere. And it's like, it's like raining oil. And I remember to my right, I'm up in the, I'm up in the, the hatch. I see people coming at us and the 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 vehicle all the vehicles stop we're like in this log train or vehicles all we all stop we all get out and we start running at them <laughs> i don't know what we were thinking and it ends it was there's hundreds of iraqis surrendering and we gather them up and this is the craziest thing they start singing and chanting to us we love george bush we love george <laughs> bush we love george bush usa yeah, I'm, I'm not joking they were like they loved that they were that they ran into us and that they surrendered to us. So we didn't have it because we, we were trying to move fast and link up with Papa Bear. We just essentially gave them what MREs we had and just threw a bunch of five-gallon water cans at them. We didn't process them at all. We just said, walk that way, pointed them south, and then just kept moving to link up with Papa Bear. And then uh, at with Papa Bear, then we have the, the – was it the battle of, at Kuwait International Airport, which was – at the time, I think they consider it like the largest tank battle in Marine Corps history. Um, where first tank battalion and, and toes and all that were engaging in like a, a ton of, of Iraqi armor. It was like one of their last lines of defense outside of the airport, and they got easily decimated. And then we moved into the city and then into Kuwait. And that was kind of weird because after being in the desert for all this time, not really seeing any cities. I remember when our vehicle came out of the desert and then jumped onto a freeway. I was like, this is so weird. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it looks like something, it looked like something right out of an apocalyptic movie. Like everything was just, just completely fucked and just 
blown up and destroyed. And same thing, we pull in the airport. It's just, just fucking leveled. Like you, you can see where our, our, our air had just blown up the runway. So they couldn't even utilize it. And the hangars are destroyed. And yeah, you know, right out, it was crazy. I, there were, I remember going to Kuwait and you could go around to a lot of the airfields and see all the hangars blown out that we destroyed because once Iraq took over, that's where they parked all their air power. And so we just one by one started plucking out these bunker buster, dro- dropping these bunker buster bombs, destroying uh, aircrafts and the bunker at the same time. Pretty, pretty impressive stuff, uh, to say the least. And, and uh, I don't know if you know this, though, but if you go uh, to Iraq in a place called Taji, where the Americans had a base, there, they had a tank graveyard. Um, and all the tanks that we destroyed during the Gulf War were all parked mm-hmm. there. There were all Iraqi tanks parked. It's called a tank graveyard. Now, you know, Americans came along and spray painted them all and, you know, you know, uh, represented New York, California, whatever, USA. But uh, there was literally a, a place on this, this base called Taji. There, there's a tank graveyard just lined up all these tanks that we destroyed. I guess Saddam kept them there and uh, either wanted them repaired or whatever. But uh, literally hundreds of tanks laying there just destroyed by us from the Gulf War. Pretty impressive stuff. Uh, no, it was. I, I bet there's so. I bet there's still some laying in the desert. Probably, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So you know, and then once we get to the airport and we secure the airport, and this is where we're like, we're at, we're actually going through into the bunkers, like searching and doing all that stuff, which is kind of an interesting thing, and kind of hair raising. So we're there for like a day, and then with the airport secured, the American flag is risen over like the tower there i remember that was a pretty cool sight to see and um like the air traffic control tower and uh which is kind of neat to see the flag being risen, risen over it and then then the ceasefire comes but what's interesting the ceasefire happens and then we're, we're just kind of hanging out we got positioned like the south end of the, one of those runways near this one of these anti-aircraft uh bunkers that the iraqis had and you just listen you could hear because just because there's a ceasefire doesn't mean fighting stopped <laughs> You could just hear it, and you know that distinct sound. Or just you could hear like fifty cal cracking in the distance, mm-hmm. and gunfire here and there, and an explosion here and there, all around because it's Kuwait, people are fighting inside of Kuwait City, um, and it's just just interesting. Just again, something it's just a weird, surreal kind of a thing. While we're sitting here hanging out, cutting jokes and talking shit, you can hear people still like skirmishing off in the distance. So when you get the final word that you guys are getting on a plane and going back home, or a boat, a ship, I should say, going back home, what's that like for you? Relieved. I was done. By then, it was uh, – we didn't we didn't leave until April. I think it was like mid-April. So we, we stayed up in Kuwait for a little while. Then we headed south. We had to turn in all of our uh, – all, all of our munitions and things, what we had left, and – uh, then we went and just hung out at some massive tent city in northern Saudi Arabia and then waited to head further south and flew out. And uh, it was it was great. I was done. <laughs> what was the reception like when you got back to the States? Amazing. Really? Amazing. Oh, yeah. I just we, we roll into we roll into uh, Las Flores at Camp Pendleton is where we were and just just have people everywhere. And I remember going out in the town in Oceanside and people were just so nice and well, like we couldn't buy a beer anywhere. And um, yeah, so I mean, I, I, contrast that to, you know, what Vietnam vets went through and that kind of shit. It, again, I think a lot of it is because for America, there hadn't been any kind of large scale engagement or war like, you know, 
-hmm. on that level where it was affecting a lot of people. When you have 600 and some thousand Americans deployed into one area, you know, at one time, I think that's what the number was at the time, 645,000 or whatever was deployed over there. It's affecting a lot of people. There's a lot of American families that know somebody or, uh, or has someone in their family that's being deployed or affected by, you know, by something that I think it, I think it, it really did uh, touch and affect America too. So I think there's also these sins of Vietnam that were also America was trying to cleanse itself of. Right. They treated, you know, there are a lot of people in the States that treated Vietnam vets like total shit. And I remember when my dad picked me up, when I finally went back home, my dad picked me up at the airport um, and we just kind of just chatted on the way home. And then the next day he had a guy he worked with, my dad used to work for the NRA, had driven all the way from D.C. down to meet me. And he gave me a hug and welcomed me home. He was a Vietnam vet, did a few tours in Vietnam. And I was like, oh, thanks, you know, and he had tears in his eyes. He goes, I, I want to welcome you, welcome you home because I wasn't welcomed home. I was like, holy shit, it's powerful wow. stuff. Yeah, it is. I, I think a lot of people forget that, you know, Vietnam vets were treated like garbage. Yes, we, we've told many of those stories, um, and, and yeah. they're, all, they're all genuinely happy for us, right? They're all genuinely happy for people who came home and got a warm reward. They, they, they are still bitter about more than anything, I think they're bitter about the way the government treated them and the way the government treated the entire war as opposed to the way other civilians treated them when they got back. You know, th that's at least some of the resentment I've heard from from other guests on, on, on the Hazard Ground podcast. So uh, make it that what you will. Now, this isn't the end of your Marine career. You do a couple more deployments around the world, right? Yep. I um, I get back to tow company and then uh, with first tanks and then they the for whatever reason, we're going to disband tow company and we're going to, and first, and we're going to disband third tank battalion and move first tank battalion to 29 palms. Okay. <laughs> um, you have your choice of going to any, of the, so what they're, they're re, kind of reorganizing. Um, and I, I, apparently this was some kind of after action kind of decision because of the Gulf war. And uh, they, then toes are going to now going to be sent to infantry regiments and be uh, incorporated into their weapons companies. And so I, we, they give us a choice of any unit we want to go to. And I wanted, I wanted to deploy. I was like, I'm ready to get back out. I want to go, I want to go on a Westpac, you know, be on ships and cruise around the Western Pacific and Indian Ocean. I was like, I'm ready to deploy. I'm like, well, first time First Marines is leaving in November if you want to go. And so me and a handful of guys, we just, we go over to uh, Camp Horno at, at Pendleton and become part of one, one. And that was in May, I think, or June. And then we deployed on Westpac in November. All right. So you're sailing around the, uh, the West Pacific for the next, what, three or four years, six, right? Six months. Okay. Six months of the Westpac. And then, then we get back and then with one, one, and then we rotate up again. You know, we, you know, you know how it is when you get back from deployments, typically you kind of, the guy, there's guys that get out, you get new guys in, and then you do some training and then we rotate, we deployed again back to Okinawa for six months. All right. So basically the last half of your enlistment, you spent uh, not in the States, so to speak. Yeah. I spent my total time I deployed, I spent, you know, what is that? You know, almost, almost two years like deployed. Mm -hmm. um, and then on like long deployments and there's a lot of training deployments and so forth in between there too. But, um, yeah. So why ultimately do you decide to get out of the Marine Corps? I decided to get out because at, uh, I was, a, well, all the guys I'd served with and had been through everything with, they'd all gotten out. I was the only dumbass that did a six year enlistment. 
and everyone else did four years and then they, they're gone. And then I'm just meeting a lot of, a lot, a lot of new guys. I, I don't know. I just was like, I feel like I'd done what I had just what the reason I joined was to travel around the world. If I can, if I could be in combat, I I'd seen whatever, you know, whatever that was for me. Again, it wasn't, wasn't what I imagined it would be. And it wasn't, wasn't the level of intensity that I thought it would be. And, and, um, but it, yeah, it's still like for any average person being in that situation would be fucking hair raising at the same time. But I feel like I just done what I came to do in the Marine Corps. And they were also offering me as a sergeant, like there's only a couple other paths you can take, but before, uh, but before I could like do anything else, they, they wanted me to do what I think, I think they're called B billets and essentially is like drill field or recruiters or something like that. I'm like, I, I don't want to fucking do that. Like, uh, I, I don't want to do that. So I then just put in for terminal leave and cause I had a ton of leave and I got out in November of 94. Before we move on to your uh, civilian career, um, in our research, we have found an old evaluation of you, um, and I want to read some of it to you, and I want to get your reaction, okay? Um, and this is it's from your, your company commander, um, and the first words are capable, intelligent, dependable, consistent performer. Was that fair at that time? I think so, yeah. Okay, all right. Um, let's see. Uh, exercises sound judgment and can generally be relied upon to accomplish missions with minimal supervision. Why generally? <laughs> I, I had a, I uh, was known to have a, a mouth on me. <laughs> well, that would lead to the next comment where it says, uh, has a tendency to allow personal opinions to interfere with professionalism at times. Yeah. I would sometimes interject when I thought something was completely stupid. <laughs> I'm sure that didn't go over well. It didn't. No, no. I got, uh, I got dug a lot. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, but I, you know, so they, so they would say something and I would pipe up. And I also felt like once I became an NCO too, and I thought something was, I, I will say this, going, looking back, I, what, some of the things I was trying to do was defend, you know, when I was a, a squad leader or, or section leader, trying to defend, you know, I'm the guys. of these of my guys. Yeah. And I think this is stupid. However, I've come to realize at the same time that I was also immature in my approach to things. And instead of just pulling the staff NCOs aside, or even I would sometimes mouth off to their, or my first lieutenant, I should have pulled them aside and had the conversation with them versus doing things kind of in the open, you know, and letting the junior Marines hear, you know, my back and forth. And right. that was, that was without a doubt unprofessional, but I was doing it because I was trying to show them I'm, I've got their back. And again, there's there, without a doubt, I was a young guy. I was, God, fuck, man, I was 20, like 24, 23, 24. So clearly had some immaturity happening there, you know, and um, I would never, I would not advocate that to anyone today. I think there's ways of backing your people, but not necessarily always engaging in the, you know, for everyone to see it because it can undermine authority and undermine command. So, yeah, I mean, I was just who I was at the time and just kind of a, sometimes a mouthy person. Well then how do we get from this guy who has uh, all these brilliant ideas that he openly voiced to his chain of command uh, to a guy who puts those brilliant ideas on paper 31 different times in the form of a book? 
Well, I, you, I eventually go through all these other jobs and all physical jobs. And I remember and my body's getting beat up as the time as the years go on. And I've, at the same time, during all those years, I'm doing all these physical jobs. I'm tinkering with writing, always writing, just keeping journals, just writing short stories. Just, you know, I've always been fascinated. I, one, I'm a big reader. I like love just I just devour a lot of books. And I did in the Marine Corps specifically, just, just devoured tons of books and always enjoyed kind of the concept of storytelling and and how it can just prove as an outlet for for people because it worked for me i remember sitting over in the desert or being on any deployment and reading and it's kind of an escape from your current position or predicament and it wasn't until like god it was in 2011 is when i first decided and now i'm married and have two small kids the first book i ever did was a children's illustrated book i know it sounds hilarious but i remember reading to my daughter's I used, to, I used to read when they were really young all the time at night. It was like the thing I would do. I'd go in and jump in bed with them and I'd read, read, read them a book or two. And then, so I'm, I remember one time I tell my wife, it's like, what if I were to create a children's book? I mean, kind of any kind of a legacy for them. So I, I, I take that idea and I take it all the way through and I have it, I create this children's book. When I'm holding it in my hand, I'm like, this is kind of interesting. So this idea has now manifested itself because I took action into a book that's now in my hand. I was like, okay. What if I did that with a novel? This is what I'm thinking. And I'll present this to my wife because I'm always coming up with ideas and she's constantly rolling her eyes. So it's like, I just can't tell her the idea. I kind of have to show her something concrete to show that I'm serious about it versus just kind of putting something forward. And then 2012, I present her the idea and I have a few chapters written of this is of the book, The End. She mm -hmm. reads it, she goes, wow, this is amazing. I think you should keep writing, but only at night. You're not quitting your day jobs so don't think about it. Um, anyway, I go through and I eventually write that book. I get an agent, fire the agent, self-publish, and the book then takes off with my first novel. So you seem to write, well, you write a lot of series, right? I mean, they're, they're, I think in all your books, you only have one standalone book, right? No, I've got more than I, I've got the one series, which okay. is The New World. Mm -hmm. And then I have a couple spinoffs of those, of characters and then I'm lately I've done um, and I also have I also have written some westerns so I've got a couple of western series, but I do have I do have some standalone westerns. I also have a handful of standalone apocalyptic books as well. Yeah, like that, Driver that, Eight, Seven Days. That seems to be a theme Everybody. of yours. So like the, the the whole apocalyptic sense of things, and and a new world order. I'm, I'm picking up on that just from you know uh, scanning some of the titles and everything else. I mean, is that why that theme, so to speak? I've always been fascinated by apocalyptic fiction. It's a kind of the what if, um, if something were to happen. Essentially, and, and my books really examine. But these are these are not zombie apocalypse. So, so right. people don't get confused. A lot of time, people put you say apocalyptic fiction, they just they think zombie. And while I find some zombie apocalyptic fiction entertaining and fun, it's I, I my whole concept when I first wrote the end and then it continued it on with the other six books was to present a reality-based apocalyptic event that affects people today and essentially kind of as a study of the human condition and what people will do once you remove certain layers of comfort. Once you remove those certain layers of comfort, people's civility completely deteriorates. And that's kind of what you get when you read those books. You see what people – I think what people are capable of once you, you take that layer of comfort away from them. How much of your military experience comes through in your writing? 
I think quite a bit. You know, there's always that that saying in creative writing class that you should write what you know. Um, and so there's a mashup of just not my my life, but also just other people's lives and and people I know and people I've read about. I kind of it's it's a mashup, but clearly my own experiences and like my interactions with people are are clearly in the books. I think any writer does that, by the way. No, and I assume so. I'm just curious. Um, when you say write about what you know, um, how much of, you know, in these post-apocalyptic novels, do is there a sense of combat? Or is that not something you sort of dive into? Well, there, well no, there is. You know, there is as far as, you know, the confusion of it, kind of the uncertainty of it, the fear of it. Um, oh, th- that, that's definitely in there. What did you find was the most difficult thing about writing? Hmm. Oh, I mean, clearly yeah, it's the, not the, ideas, the, right? I mean, that, that those seem to flow for you. <laughs> yeah, it's not the ideas. You know, I I I, I hate the rewriting process. <laughs> I, I wish I could be a one and done kind of guy, but you, you can't ever you can never do that with books. So you, you you write your you write your rough draft, and then you've got to go back and you got to read it, and you and you, you before this before it gets to the editor, you're doing your own self edits, your own rewrites by going through it quite a bit. I don't enjoy that as much as I enjoy writing the rough because I'm kind of in this very storytelling, very creative space. I'm just sitting down and I hammer from page one all the way to the end. I've got a, I've got a process that I think really works for people and specifically new writers to get them to finish a book. Um, Cause so often people will stop. They'll, they'll write a paragraph or write a chapter. Then they'll stop. They'll go back and they start reading what they've written and start self editing it. And it takes them out of the creative process and typically will end up that they're not confident in their skills, stop them completely from ever progressing. So I've been practicing that just, just was natural for me from the beginning but it, it one, I found that it works for me to complete books in very quick, quick fashion, by the way. And then secondly, I enjoy that because I'm, I'm just in this creative space. I'm just literally telling a story, even though I know and I've given myself permission to go back and make corrections later. I just don't worry about that shit. I just literally sit down on page one and just write the book until I'm done without ever really without ever reading it. As far as like a, a a series like the New World series where there's seven books in it, you know, just and forgive the the sort of crude, rudimentary understanding of this, but you, you know when you when Hollywood makes a movie and then they get a sequel and then they get the part three and the part four, you start to run out of fresh angles to to write something from or to come up with something new and different that really catches you. Um, you know, every now and then you find a Rocky four that that ends up being probably one of the better ones in in the whole series, but as you continued that that new world series along, how did you you get to the next step of what not not only logically makes sense, but you know to a certain extent, as you talked about, was believable? Was you know something that was in reality? I'm glad you bring that up. Um, what's interesting is readers love character. If they're reading your books and they love your characters, they never want it to end. Okay, right. and so there's a temptation for authors and writers just to keep hammering it out. Um, I, I don't want to say God, P guys are doing this or gals are doing this strictly for the money, but clearly they're just trying to provide their fans something that they, uh, that they want. They're just providing them the, them the red meat, but I, without a doubt, it becomes problematic to continue a series on and on and on. And I found myself struggling to produce seven books for this series 
even though I, I had pledged I did, I, I had created kind of a very rough outline, if you could be called that, because when you're writing a book, you've got, you create, you have an idea, kind of a story arc for the individual book. But if you're doing a series, then you also have a series arc that's separate from that, right? It's kind and of like, it, a, like, like a, you know, Sopranos or uh, any of those series, you know, uh, Game of Thrones, how you kind of just over from season to season, you have to make that arc make sense, right? Exactly. So it has to be continuity um, in, in each episode or in each, you want to call a book, like a book is an episode, is a, a, each one has to still follow along the ultimate series arc and how it's going to conclude. It has to all make sense in the end, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I did find it difficult. I know a lot of people have always been, I get hammered a lot, like, please, can you keep it? There's nothing to, I, I thought it unrealistic, use the word unrealistic, and it's so true. I think it's unrealistic to have one character go through just endless fighting and combat and, and come out unscathed and all the, it's like, I, I can't, I couldn't, I couldn't put my main, my, the main character. I, it just didn't seem, it just seemed very unrealistic to me. I was like, no, this dude is like, it doesn't make sense. Like if I'll continue it, I'm going to have to kill him. <laughs> right. Right. Sure. So I, I, it just didn't make sense to me. And I, I thought seven books was a little long winded. Um, I don't know how other writers do it. Uh, I, I just found it difficult to keep coming up with, fre- like you, you said it perfectly, fresh, new, something interesting. Because um, I think as the series goes on, it, it's while it's still good, it's never as good as the first couple, right? Mm-hmm. No, you and, even and see that. You even see that in movies too. Sure, and, and I think character development, both in TV and in books, uh, when you do it repetitively, is a big thing. Um, and and what they say in the TV world, at least TV execs I've talked to, by the time you get to season three of a series your characters have fully developed. And that's where the sweet spot is. Like seasons three, four, five of a series is where you really get the best material because the character is fully developed and you can hit him from different angles. But after that, it's hard to redevelop a character without completely altering the storyline, right? I mean, it's almost like the the path of an alcoholic, right? You, You see them at the beginning and then you see how they fall into it and you see how they get out of it. And once they're out of it, now it's like, if they don't fall back into it, well, how do you continue to show them the way that they've lived their life? Because they've already overcome this big struggle yeah. without making it unrealistic. Oh, well, he's an alcoholic. Now let's just make him a drug addict. Like, I mean, it just, it, it doesn't make, it becomes unrealistic at that point. And I think, um, you know, for obviously you're the expert, but for writers and, and things of that nature, that's a, that's a big, big challenge to keep ideas fresh, realistic without making a character become so repetitive um, that the storyline isn't really new, if that makes sense. No, I mean, everything you said was perfect, and, and you, you brought up something along the line as of, of overcoming something. And that is essentially what every story is about. You've got a cast of characters who are trying to overcome a situation or series of situations, and some of them can be you know, can, there can be a, a kind of duplicitous kind of uh, theme to it, where not even just the main character is trying to have some internal struggles he's trying to overcome, right? Ghosts of his past or whatever. Maybe it is alcoholism, right? At the same time, he's also probably encountering struggles on the outside in the real world. So he's having to, to 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 combat both of those things at the same time. And the idea of storytelling is you want an ultimate resolution to what those issues are. And you're right when you say once you have say you got a story about an alcoholic, which that's it. I think the story is over. Maybe you can have some you know you can have another one where he's now he finds his new path. Maybe the new struggle is where. If I was going to write about, about an alcoholic, maybe the new one is where now he's got a family member. And now the struggle is how he can convince that person to be on the path he's on. But 
other than that, that character has, has completed their story arc. Right. And you know? and if you have a family member does it, you've already just told that story. We've already just watched it. We don't need to watch uh, yeah. their family member. So again, it's not new when it's not fresh, but uh, again, we, we, we could uh, continue this conversation, but you, I think the audience gets the point. I just appreciate the yeah. fact that you were able to put seven books in a series um, and, and stay true to the fact that you you know, wanted to keep it fresh and the ideas fresh and, and the character development um, not routine and things of that nature. So to that end, I, I congratulate you on all that work. And obviously, you know, again, 31 books. I, I would ask one final question. How do you know when it's time to write your next book? <laughs> I've, I, I'm always writing. I've got, I'm working on three books right now. Um, I know it sounds confusing to people. How can you do that? I'm just, I've always, I've got so many ideas and I'll, whenever I get an idea, I use the voice memo or my, the voice notes or whatever on my phone. And I leave that there because the, the real world, by the way, it just provides so much, you know, ideas and content out there. I look at the real world. It's like, Oh, I take that situation. What if I just stretch that situation to this? Well, does that, what does that mean? Oh, that sounds really cool. And I'll take that idea, put it down, or I'll watch a movie and I'll see something playing. I was like, but what if it was a concept similar to that, but it had this, this, and that. And so I've got a ton of idea concepts written up on my computer. I told my wife, it's like outside the life insurance, like literally just open my computer, just hire, don't tell anyone I'm dead and just hire a ghostwriter. And you've got probably content for another three years there. (laughs) (laughs) Just have at it. Um, But so I'm always writing. Always. That's awesome. Well, you guys can check out Jeff's website, gmichaelhopf.com. Uh, he's got all of his books there, and obviously they can reach out to you there as well. But certainly, Jeff, I mean, it's been an amazing discussion. Uh, thank you for being able to recall with such great detail your time uh, in the Middle East during the Gulf War. It's pretty impressive um, all these years later that it still sticks with you as much as it does. Uh, some guys have blurry memories. Some guys... You know, again, all those ideas in your head, you have to replace that space with something else. And sometimes those memories go away, but obviously not the case for you. So certainly thank you for being so uh, honest and open about all that. Yeah, I, I know it's not as uh, thrilling as other people's uh, uh, combat experiences, but, you know, it's just it is what it is. <laughs> no, but that, but you see, that's the thing. And we've, we have guests who said that at the end of the podcast and. It it's, doesn't have to be thrilling. You know, the idea is that everybody's story is unique. Even two guys who serve in the same unit and went through the same battles have completely different experiences in going through them. Um, and so to that end, you know, every story has its own individuality. And uh, as we talked about with character development, the development of your character uh, throughout your life and your story is a unique one. And one I think that certainly has merit and our audience certainly like to hear. So, again, thank you for your, for your time and your honesty. And certainly thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.